Welcome to the next mile. Today's episode The Pissed Urbanist. Let's take a walk. We can get pretty far using our own two feet. Think about it. Placing one foot in front of the other can take us pretty far. Before we had cars, before getting from point A to point B could be done conveniently behind a wheel, a lot of people walked. Sure, it probably wasn't the fastest way to get somewhere, but it was something. But I don't have to tell you. As more convenient modes of transportation become readily available, walking becomes more and more obsolete. It's not preferred. For some, walking is more of an inconvenience than not. With the way we shape and build communities around us, walking is not as easy to do. We've created infrastructure that is no longer conducive to foot travel forcing people off the sidewalks and into various other modes of transportation. But is all this for the better? What do we lose when we turn our backs to the original form of transportation? I'm Puyi Dianat, and this is the Next Mile Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking about urbanism and its relationship to transportation. But first, what even is urbanism? I got a chance to sit down with the ATL urbanist, Darren Givens. He's the co-founder of the Urbanism Advocacy Group, Thread ATL, based here in Atlanta. He tells me being an urbanist can mean a lot of things. Thread ATL is, is a group of urbanists working towards nonprofit status right now, and we've already got a board of directors of nine people. What happened is I, I felt like I, I, I wanted to be more than just my one voice when I was talking about urbanism, writing about urbanism, uh, and I wanted to be more representative of the urbanist community of thought in Atlanta at large. And so there was this wonderful um, thread, and it really was a conversational thread online that um, my colleague Matt Garbett had put together, where it was people who were sort of amateur urbanists like me and Matt Garbett and our cohort, uh, Lauren Welsh, and um, mixed together with actual professional transportation planners and urban planners and people who work for various levels of government and who, and who remain anonymous, I should say, within what we call the thread. We helped each other out on all of our various uh, ventures uh, to save buildings that were in danger of being torn down and things like this. And we thought, well, we, we work pretty well together. Could we form, you know, an actual like initiative and, and brand it and build a website and uh, social media accounts to sort of promote some of these things that, that we're doing and some of these thoughts that we have. And so that's what we did. We, we decided to call it uh, Threat ATL and to really act as though we're a nonprofit organization, even though we, we have not achieved that status yet, but to really think in terms of reaching out to um, city council members, and we'll meet with 
people who work at uh, MARTA and people who work at the city and various leaders around Atlanta to talk to them about some of these concerns that we have uh, about parking and road design, safe routes to transit, architecture that is at human scale and things like this, and uh, introducing them to some of these sort of like best practices and ideas from cities on a, on a global level and making sure that they are forefront in people's minds in Atlanta as we make these decisions bit by bit that affect our urban environment. And so we work together really well on that level. And we're hoping to become an actual nonprofit and be a little more robust in the number of events that we have and doing sort of just general public outreach uh, to bring people into this sort of line of thinking about uh, urbanism in Atlanta and being able to put it in plain language. A lot of times when um, urban planners, God bless them, <laughs> reach out and, and, and speak to people about urbanism, they end up using a lot of jargon that forms a sort of, sort of a wall that um, your average person can't get beyond. But if I, Darren Gibbons, write about it, since I'm not an urban planner, this is a hobby of mine, I don't even know all the jargon, so I can't help but use plain language. And I, I think that that helps an organization like Thread ATL a lot, where we can reach out and, and speak to people who are not already in the fold, who are not already converted to uh, urbanism in, in a big, bold way, and speak to them in language that they can understand. Thread ATL is sort of the uh, Avengers of mainstream urbanism. That's, <laughs> that's what you want to see. Without a lot of sequels, though. I, I, I will accept that. I'll accept it's that. It's yeah. not an Infinity War. It ends <laughs> week. What is an urbanist? Can you tell us? You know, if you had a room full of five self-identified urbanists, you'd probably get five different answers. To me, an urbanist is somebody who is interested in and in studying the way that the urban environment, the built environment, interacts with society. You know, the way that uh, the built environment affects us on so many different levels, on an economic level, in our personal lives, in our safety, in our mobility. Um, it, we are affected so much by the way that our buildings are placed, how close they are together, um, by the design of our streets, whether they can be walked upon or not, how fast the speed limits are. It affects so many things about our lives beyond just safety. It, it makes us so that we do or do not have a connection or a sense of place about our neighborhoods, you know. And so I, I really look at it in terms of that relationship between the way that our whole urban environment is shaped and our lives. We get accustomed to our surroundings. Living in the same town or neighborhood can do that to you. It's natural. It means we know where we are. But with that comes a kind of comfort. The kind of comfort where we do not notice how our surroundings impact our daily lives. It can be as simple as how we get to work in the morning or go to pick up groceries. I told Darren about this aha moment of mine. For so long, I lived with two cars in our household. And it wasn't until we forced ourselves to give one up that I realized how disconnected it had made me. Without the shields of glass and high speeds of a car, my two and a half mile commute suddenly became an opportunity to take in the community around me. From something as simple as saying hello to a neighbor while I traveled at 15 miles per hour on a bike or scooter, 
to musings about how my neighbors lived and how our city had formed. And after I told him my story, I asked him, what got him interested in urbanism in the first place? Tell me what got you interested in this, because this isn't, you know, run-of-the-mill uh, hobby here. No, no, this is definitely, this is, this is a hobby I'm, I'm very passionate about. And honestly, it, it started when I was a kid growing up in the suburbs of eastern Cobb County and watching all of the, the forests around us and all of the farmland around us disappear one by one, getting turned into subdivisions and shopping centers. And watching all of that nature disappear really, for some reason, had an effect on me when I was a kid, especially when coupled together with trips that we would make to uh, Savannah and Charleston and these wonderful historic neighborhoods in those old cities that were built before cars were around, you know, that were very much built intentionally for walking around where you had homes close to grocery stores on streets that were really inviting for walking. And I love those. And I noticed that difference between those two types of places, that suburban environment that I grew up in, and those wonderfully walkable, inviting historic neighborhoods that we would visit from time to time. And then growing up as a very independent kind of kid, I always wanted to try to uh, ride my bicycle to the grocery store. I would grow up watching these movies and TV shows where kids in New York City or Chicago, and I remember this one called movie called The Phantom Toll Booth, where this kid lives in San Francisco, and he, he goes home by himself walking and taking the streetcar. I would see things like that, and I would be like, I want to be able to do that. And I tried riding my bike to the grocery store in the suburbs of East Cobb County, and I almost died <laughs> you know, as a kid. And uh, I mean, it's not funny, but I mean, now, now I can laugh at it at the time. It was in incredibly scary. But, you know, I wanted to be like those kids, and I noticed that you just couldn't do it. And so I started putting all of those things together, and I, I didn't know exactly how I wanted to get involved in, you know, advocating for better places at the time. I didn't, hadn't heard of urbanism when I was a kid. But then when I grew up and had a kid of my own, my wife and I were living in Virginia Highland on uh, Greenwood Avenue, which is just a couple blocks north of Ponce de Leon. And so I would be walking around, pushing our baby in a stroller on these horrible sidewalks, these what are they, octagonal pavers or hex? I'm not sure if they're octagonal or hex. I think they're hex. hex yeah. Or hex, yeah, hex, that's it. They're hex, hex pavers, yeah. And uh, these pavers that would just get totally up, uprooted by, well, by tree roots. And it was terrible. And we, I would have to push a stroller around in the roadway, you know, on the asphalt, just to get around them. And the, the drivers, for some reason, were not terribly nice <laughs> considering a guy was walking around with a stroller. And then I would try to cross Ponce. And at this time, we were, we were already starting to be a one-car family. And so I was trying to get around on foot. And I would try to cross Ponce de Leon to get to the Publix over there. And even when I had the right-of-way, and even when I had a baby in a stroller in front of me, it was still dangerous to cross Ponce. And cars would be turning, you know, making turns as I was crossing the crosswalk with a signal and just like completely ignoring safety and human morality. <laughs> it's like, what, what turns people into these monsters? I, I, I would wonder. And I just sort of had this little amateur urbanist theory that it was something about the design of our place, the design of our roads that, you know, brought out the worst in people and made them sort of these monstrous, unsympathetic, unempathetic people when they got behind the wheel of a car. And so I embarked on 
years and years of uh, sort of amateur research into studies on, um, you know, the way that we relate to our built environment. And I just started writing about it in a blog. That's right down from Murder Kroger. You got vehicular assault publics. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what it was. Vehicular assault publics. And uh, more dangerous than I thought living in town was going to be coming from the suburb. I thought that I was going to be able to find a really wonderful place. He has a point. Many who leave suburbs like Cobb County associate in-town living with a more connected life. Even though the predominant way to travel is cars, we've designed our spaces to cater to them rather than to us. Public spaces, after all, should be about the people, not the cars we use. So what could that future look like as we think of advanced modes of transportation? Personal drones? Autonomous pods? Or even a hyperloop? It sounds futuristic and like something straight out of the movies. It's exciting to think about, and I know it can be a possibility. But as Darren suggests, that future of transportation doesn't have to be completely centered around creating more vehicles. Instead, we can go back to basics, like using our own two feet, like biking, using scooters, or maybe even just walking. The great thing is that answers are out there and we know what makes better places in terms of transportation engineering and road design. We know what makes safer places and less hostile places for walking. The hurdle is getting people on board with making those design changes. If we have to make the car lanes more narrow so that we can make the sidewalks wider, that's a good thing. A lot of people fear that. A lot of people fear those changes because they feel like, well, it's going to cause more car traffic. One of the things that people get really upset about if you suggest taking away some lanes from major roads and expanding sidewalks or putting in bike lanes is that it's going to push cars into their quiet neighborhood streets off of the main road so that people will have cut through traffic in front of their houses. And, you know, trying to talk to people about that and say, well, we have studies that show that, no, that's not the case. People don't suddenly switch around their commute and do all of this cut through, not on a a big scale. And even if they did do some cut through driving into your streets, there are ways that we can make them slow down with, you know, certain devices. It's nothing to be afraid of. But for some reason, we're not having those kinds of conversations. Historically in Atlanta, Uh, neighbors rise up against a change that would put in a bike lane and take away a car lane. Our leaders listen to them and say, okay, we're not putting on the bike lane, you know, or we're not expanding the sidewalk. And I feel like there's a citywide conversation and a cultural change that needs to happen that is not happening on the level of those incremental little changes of redesigning streets one by one so that we have this connected network of streets that are inviting to pedestrians and bicyclists and scooter riders as well. Once we start building those complete streets, people are going to see that it's nothing to fear. People are going to see that streets can be inviting, public spaces, wonderful shared spaces, and they're going to think about streets in a whole new way. We can rethink our streets as shared spaces, as shared public spaces every day. And I think that following through on those complete streets plans we already have would be a big step towards that.
Who do you look at internationally or globally that's just got this equation locked down? They're doing it all right. Everything is good. Or are there any people that are achieving the standards that you feel like we need to have as a society? Something that's interesting that I noticed on my last trip to New York City, I go there fairly regularly, every, every few years, and I've noticed that every trip I make, there's more and more bicyclists on the street, and not necessarily in bike lanes. I mean, there were bicyclists on the street where there are no bike lanes, but where cars are driving very slowly. And I think that that's something that we could learn from, where if we could just find ways to design our streets so that cars slow down, not every street needs a bike lane. I think that there's just a really inviting thing about being outside of a car on a street where cars are going very slowly. You don't feel threatened. The streets feel safer, and it just feels like a more vibrant public place. There's just something about that street grid in, in New York City. It's something that can be replicated. It doesn't have to you know, be grandfathered in from a you know, 18th century street grid. You heard him. The Big Apple. I know. The thought of New York City immediately suggests a montage of yellow taxi cabs, congested sidewalks, and traffic. But there's more. You just said today's word of the day. Traffic. That's right. Today's word of the day is traffic. The bane of our existence as we're standing around our office water coolers. When I think of traffic in New York City, I inevitably go to one name. Samuel Schwartz, a.k.a. Gridlock Sam. Samuel Schwartz was a former New York cabbie, traffic commissioner, transportation expert, and he even wrote a book on autonomous vehicles called No One at the Wheel. Schwartz is an expert on what causes traffic and also the leading solutions and theories on how we can fix it. In the 1960s, as he was working in public policy, environmental concerns and backlash against the freeways led Schwartz to taking on some crazy ideas. What were they? Bike lanes, public plazas, and even a red zone. What's a red zone, you ask? Well, it was a ban on all cars from 11 a.m. until 4 p.m. in certain areas. They went so far as to even manufacture signs for them, but it didn't end up happening. For more information on this podcast, visit our blog, beamimagination.com slash ATL Urbanist. But Gridlock, Sam, and Darren are on the same page. There's more to NYC and its use of space than we think. A city like Atlanta can learn a thing or two from New York. Darren and I agree that Atlanta's use of space is less than ideal. It's not the most walking-friendly place to get around. Biking is a bit limited as well. One of the books I've read a few times is by Marta's first GM. It's called From Mule to Marta. Mm. And it documents Atlanta's first chance of giving public transportation a, a, you know, a fighting chance. And they dismantled it. They took everything apart. Mm. And do you feel like w with the second coming, we have a chance to correct that? And are, are we going to make the same mistake? Are we going to let cars always lead the conversations that we have around our communities and our lives? No, I don't think so. Because that car era that happened after the, the streetcar era, is what you were referring to. So we had the streetcar era 
in Atlanta, where Atlanta was just like so full of a, of a really dense streetcar network from the 1890s up until about the 1940s. And it was supplanted by this car culture that came along and that Atlanta really ended up embracing for various reasons. Some of them had to do with uh, white flight and, and discriminatory practices and racism. Uh, was all baked into that as well. But also, we had the ability to match the way that our overall urban area was designed for those cars so that you had suddenly, instead of stores right up on the street like you had during the streetcar area where you could get off a streetcar and walk into a front door. Suddenly you had all of these shopping centers being built in the middle of the city, pushed back from the street, pushed back from the sidewalk behind parking lots. And suddenly it became what's referred to as a car-scaled environment rather than a human-scale environment. And so it was those two things working together the embrace of cars and the embrace of the environment that was scaled for them that really reshaped Atlanta. And I don't think that we're going to make that mistake again. I think that we are really well underway with more human scale oriented infill that's happening around the city. And if you look at a lot of the new developments that are going on in the middle of the city right now, you see that things are really being pushed up against the sidewalk and you've got doors and windows alongside the sidewalk, which are very, very much pedestrian oriented. And I think that we're just going to continue heading in that direction. How fast we head into that direction and whether or not we can let go of some of these large parking decks, which end up marring some of the urban fabric. Can we talk yeah. about the parking decks? Yeah, and sure. Parking in general, it, it sucks. Yeah. And <laughs> that's one of the hopes I have for AVs, that maybe we can at least get push those out of town at least. Like, no more surface parking, no more parking decks, right? Mm, like, right. that has to be the worst use of land that we could possibly have. Can you talk about that? Yeah, and it, it, the thing is, it's it's not just a, a bad use of land, which it absolutely is. It's all, also something that enables more car trips. I mean, when you, when we put in more parking spaces into a new development, those are more car trips that are coming into the city. It makes it difficult for transit to compete. When you bake parking into a new apartment building where parking is offered for free, and I, I'm doing, you can't, you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes. Parking is never free. These parking spaces, especially with the structured parking, is upwards of $25,000 per space to build. And that cost is always going to get passed along, whether it's in the way of uh, rent for um, residents, in the way of rent for business owners, uh, whether it's uh, getting passed along through products that are being sold. We're always paying for that parking. But when it's bundled in like that, when that payment of parking is bundled in to um, an office building or an apartment building, I mean, you're just spurring more car trips into those parking spaces and making it difficult for things like transit or, or bicycling to compete. And Darren is really passionate about the possibility of making our space more efficient. In his eyes, this isn't something that we need to wait for in the distant future. These are changes we can make now. With the proper backing from our leaders and our residents, it is possible. One thing I was going to talk about is there's conversations right now around highway expansion. 
and I read this anecdote about a lady who lived in Doraville, Jean Mims. She's 86 now. Mm. She lost her house to eminent domain in 1958 when they put in I-285. Mm. And some of these conversations and maps that are being drawn up right now threaten to once again move her house because she moved a block away. Right. Not yeah. anticipating expansion. Wow. Why is that idea not going to solve the problems we're trying to fix or trying to do it in D.C. and Maryland where I grew up and lived with gridlock? Oh, really? Yeah. Now I see those same conversations happening down here. Why, why does opening up these lanes just not solve everything? Why, why is that a broken method? You know, it will it will solve things for a few years, maybe two or three years. You're, you are going to see some less congestion uh, when we put in things like toll lanes. And that's what's being put in there. I assume you're talking about the top yep. end of 285 there. They're putting in toll lanes. It's, it's not an expansion of the um, roadway that exists. It's, it's um, an addition of toll lanes, from what I understand, that's happening over there. And we do have studies that show, and if you go on the Georgia Department of Transportation website, you can you can find studies of what's happened in toll la- with toll lanes so far, which are still pretty new. I mean, this this whole recent expansion of toll lanes around that the northern suburbs and interstates like 75 is something that has happened really in the last two or three years. And they do clear up some congestion, absolutely, for a two or three year period, maybe four years, you're going to see some cleared up congestion. But at about that five-year mark, and we have many studies showing this, you're going to have what's called induced demand effect, where the clearer the interstates get within the context of a growing metropolitan area where we've got thousands of people constantly moving into the region every year, within that context, you are just going to fill up those lanes that whatever capacity you've built in, whether it's HOV lanes or you know Lexus lanes, toll lanes, whatever you've built, it is going to get filled up again. Then you're going to be right back to square one, except you're back to square one having spent billions of dollars of limited public funding on this one potential <laughs> solution. We're really putting all of our eggs money-wise into this one basket that studies show is not going to work long-term for us. I think that, you know, a lot of leaders who were in charge of spending this money find it intoxicating, this idea that they're going to be able to make people happy for a few years with uh, reducing some congestion. And and they're just not thinking about the, the long-term. And we know that long-term, what we need is to expand uh, transit out into the suburbs. That's going to be something we could even be doing that on uh, existing interstate highways. Instead of expanding capacity on interstate highways, we could take the capacity that we have right now and dedicate some of it to uh, bus rapid transit lanes and really dedicate it purely to bus rapid transit lanes so that those become just as speedy to use almost as as a rail line, yet less expensive to operate. And then expanding bus service all around the suburbs as well. That's the kind of thing that I would prefer to see rather than these um, these toll lanes. 
It's sort of the same idea as why we shouldn't build parking decks. If you build it, they will come, and they, they will, will come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially in, in 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 an area where we're constantly putting new jobs in town, and we're constantly um, growing our population. That if you build it, they will come. Uh, effect is is really big in a place that's already pretty car oriented. What we need to be doing is changing our culture and uh, changing our options and shifting people into different modes of transportation. And now, a tale of time travel to terrible transportation troubles. We're coming to you right now on the back of our bikes. Our producer and I are going from Adair Park all the way to Sweet Auburn Historic District to Constellations, where we record this podcast. Nick, you know what's pretty interesting? All the roads that we're biking down were once dominated by streetcars. Actually for about 80 straight years until the early 1950s. That's when Atlanta decided to bring it all down. Yeah, you know, it's funny to think that we're riding through uh, Adair Park, the neighborhood our studio's in. It's named after George Adair, who brought the first mule-driven streetcars to Atlanta way back in the day. Today we're riding Jump's electric assist bikes. They really help us get where we're going without breaking a sweat. Yes, in 30 short years, Atlanta went from zero to 50 miles of streetcar track. And more importantly, from horse-drawn to steam to electric. By the time streetcars were big, electricity and streetcars were so intertwined that one guy, Joel Hurt, brought them together under the Atlanta Consolidated Street Railway Company. They were pretty much acting as one utility. In a minute, we're gonna pass his building, Hurt Plaza. That's right, he later sold his companies to the Georgia Railway and Electric Company. You might know them better today as Georgia Power. By 1920, streetcars were booming. They had over 100 million annual passengers. Look at that, Atlanta was actually making public transportation work in a big way. Sadly, that was not quite what happened. Pretty short-lived. After the Second World War, we turned our back on the streetcars that had connected our city for so long and the infrastructure that was created by the electricity companies. The private automobile companies worked to make sure that as many miles of track as could be pulled down were pulled down. All of that to make way for cars. To you now, as we're nearing our destination, we're passing today's Atlanta streetcar that is operating downtown. Maybe this time, hopefully, we'll make decisions that are human scale and help us to move in a smarter way. That's why this has been another tale in time travel to terrible transportation troubles. Go to our blog at beamimagination.com slash atlurbanist to read more. Now, back to Darren. One uh, interesting study that I saw, Georgia State just got a grant, $250,000 to study how transportation impacts public health. Mm -hmm. And they're working with diabetic patients at Grady and they're giving one of four options to them. They can either get signed up for a transportation counseling class. Mm -hmm. They get MARTA passes, ride hailing passes, or one other option. And they're trying to study how each one of those avenues could help people think differently about how we move around. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to the question of who is the most important voice in this journey that's ahead of us in redefining how we travel and how we move? Is it the politicians? Is it the people? I feel like the average person feels like they don't 
have an ability to impact things. It's hard for me to say the most important because I, I really want to, you know, dodge the question and say that it's important for all of us to have a voice and be involved. But if I really did have to have to drill it down to somebody who is absolutely the more, most important, it really has to be leadership because leaders are listening to a lot of different voices. Some who say we want bike lanes, some who say we want to promote transit, some who say we want to make this city easier to walk around. And on the other hand, they're saying, they're listening to people who say, we want the city to be easy to drive around. And I want to make sure that our streets don't slow me down on my driving commute in the morning. Politicians need to be making some very tough decisions about what's right in the long term, you know. It's very easy in a car-centric place like Atlanta to find a net positive in appeasing the people who don't want their car commutes slowed down at all. And I think that it's a very difficult decision to make to say, we're gonna go with a bike lane anyway. We're gonna go with a bike lane anyway, even if you're gonna be angry at me, even if you're gonna <laughs> maybe not vote for me in the next election. I know that in the long run, what's best for the city is to promote these other types of transportation so that we have a, a greater mix of mobility in Atlanta, such as cycling and e-scooters and transit ridership and walking, so that we have this richer mix that is not so heavily weighted as it is today towards driving cars. So the future doesn't have to just be flying cars and teleporting from point A to B. It can be riding a bike. It can be riding an electric scooter. It can be walking, just putting one foot in front of the other, step by step. Darren, thanks so much for your time today. Step by step, urbanism advocacy can actually change us for the better. So I love hearing these conversations. I love the work that you guys are doing and the discussions that it's spurring. It's going to lead us to make a better, more connected society. And I appreciate your time today.